Chapter 4, Wet Work. What do you do to prepare for that day? You know the day I'm talking about. Just about everyone, young or old, has had that day. You could be giving a speech to a room full of important people, or getting your best suit on for a job interview. On those days, the world seems to shimmer at the edges. Things faded seem uncertain. Anything could happen. When I get to one of those life events, my hands are always sweaty, but also cold, It can be 90 degrees outside and I have corpse hands. It really helps with uh, first impressions to shake with a zombie hand. So what do you do to prepare for that day? Do you have a ritual? Do you get up early? Do you pray? In McMinn County, Tennessee on August 1st, 1946, a lot of people were trying to steady their nerves. Today's podcast is about that election day. This podcast will kick off the Battle of Athens. But before we get started, I want to make something clear. This is my interpretation of the following events. As I explained in the first podcast, I'm no historian. But I have a feeling that out of any of the others, this section of the podcast will be the most disputed, the most argued over, and probably the most criticized. In history circles, battles are intense sources of debate. People still argue about battles that happened thousands of years ago. So this is all okay with me. This is the reason I tackled the podcast in the first place, so send those corrections. The three chapters prior to this introduced you to the main characters of this drama. Now you get to hear it all come to a head. On the morning of August 1st, Bill White walked down to GI headquarters. Remember those old stories of people having to walk to school both ways in the snowdrifts, all that? Well, that's not very far off for Bill White, remember. He says, quote, Not many people had telephones in those days, and I didn't have one either. So my organizing just had to be done on a person-to-person basis. I just walked around the streets of Athens and talked to people, end quote. What a novel idea, talking to people. Going out, walking to somebody's house, talking to them. So he sent out messengers. Uh, Bill took stock of the situation. How strong was the enemy? What about the location of deputies? What armaments did they have? Bill White had done recon in the jungle around battle-hardened Japanese soldiers. That day, he had to do it in his own hometown. The group of men he'd built over the course of the campaign checked in one by one. Bill needed all the intelligence he could get. They didn't have many weapons. In the oral history, Bill says they had, quote, a couple of pistols, end quote. But in the cookbook, it's mentioned as P-38s and 45 German Lugers, uh, both tools of the Wehrmacht that the American soldiers brought back as trophies from World War II. Scouts reported back. They had a grim situation on their hands. At around 9 in the morning on August 1st, a passenger train carrying 40 armed men arrived and dropped them onto the streets of Athens. These 40 represented the last of the deputies that Sheriff and Senate hopeful Pat Mansfield had already assembled. They numbered around 200. That's 200 deputies in town. These new arrivals fanned out. Deputies guarded intersections, watched crowds vote, sometimes touched the pistols on their hips, or even brandished those weapons for effect. Cantrell had hired gunmen from across the McMinn County and into the neighboring political machine in Polk County. Some had come from Georgia. 
One rumor was that the nearby prison and its warden, a man named Ferris who you'll meet in the next chapter, had promised to bolster Cantrell's forces with hardened criminals. Many of the deputies carried more than pistols. Long guns, that is, shotguns and rifles, were stored in convenient locations. The cookbook has a great passage about this scene. Quote, For a city the size of Athens, it amounted to an army of occupation. They were patrolling the sidewalks in pairs and the streets in carloads. Mean-eyed, red-faced gunmen scanned the storefronts and the crowds from the open windows of slowly cruising automobiles. Many of them wore white Panama hats with snap brims tilted at arrogant angles. Some of these pairs of sidewalk deputies were suited and wore neckties, a costume which seemed to set them apart and give an extra flip of menace to their shiny badges and hip weapons. End quote. Tilted at arrogant angles. What a great line. That's going to be the title of my first album, actually, Arrogant Angles. Anyway, despite this, Bill White had fought on Guadalcanal. He'd fought on Tarawa. Few, if any, of the deputies had seen real combat. They'd practiced their violence on a cowed populace. Bill White killed other human beings in the mosquito-infested depths of a death-filled jungle. As he strolled around town, Bill likely walked past the Athens Cinema, the Strand, as he gathered his men. Pictures taken on Election Day, August 1st, show the movie theater's marquee. A noir called The Dark Corner, starring Lucille Ball, yeah, the same Lucille Ball, played on one screen. I'm back up in a dark corner, and I don't know who's hitting me. The exciting story, The Dark Corner, which gripped the readers of Good Housekeeping magazine, now spins its fascinating plot on the screen. Sounds ominous, right? Playing on the other screen was a western called Gunning for Vengeance. Ironic that the movie is about a sheriff chasing a murderer. As Bill gathered intel, probably wondering how the heck they were going to stop an occupying army... He could see how many voters had materialized for the day. Lines went out the door at the Dixie Cafe, Precinct 12, equaled by a long line at the Waterworks, Precinct 11. The Courthouse, Precinct 1, had a similar line. All right, I just named three precincts, right? The Dixie Cafe, the Waterworks, and the Courthouse. You're going to need to remember these three. I'll try to be clear about where the action is going on in these three precincts, but they're really important and they're also the most populous precincts in the county for voting. Precinct 11 will actually be a bloody mess, literally, so let's keep those so-called waterworks in mind. I think of that old colloquialism for assassination and violence, the word wet work, when thinking of the waterworks. Hence the name of this podcast. The waterworks sounds like an industrial plant, but it was actually a set of offices for the municipal administration. As for the Dixie Cafe, Precinct 12, I can't help but think of malted milkshakes, though I doubt they had many sweets in the immediate post-war days of 1946. From the few pictures I can find, the cafe was a brick building, like so many others in Athens, with an awning and dumpsters set off to the side. The old courthouse, Precinct 1, was a really gorgeous building with a bell tower that stretched to the sky. Doric columns greeted you at the doors, and the entire structure was shaded by trees that shone green in the full beating rays of early August sun. On that day, like so many other towns in the United States, officials handled votes at the precinct level. 
A lot of those precincts happened in Athens, the most populous town in the county. There were, of course, many rural precincts in McMinn County. Voters cast ballots at churches or businesses, sometimes in quite out-of-the-way places. Here's what voting looked like, whether you were in the rural precincts or the relative bustling metropolis of Athens. First, you have the voters. Turnout remained high throughout this day. Maybe it was the novelty of the non-aligned GI ticket. Or perhaps the store closings across town influenced it. Plenty of McMinn County citizens hit the streets just to see the most interesting election in years. But, to picture it, think of the busiest election you've ever witnessed in your day. That's the kind of crowds to imagine. It was a social event of the decade, so to say. Many precincts had lines out the door from the opening of the polls. Voters also had to prove eligibility to vote. Eligibility of individual voters came down to the poll tax. I haven't gone deeply into poll taxes in this podcast yet. I've tried to conserve time. But just understand that Tennessee municipalities levied a tax that had to be paid before you could vote. Voters carried around their poll tax receipt to receive their ballot. It was a sore point of corruption in Tennessee during this period, and it's often associated with segregationist policies. However, in 1946, it was often used to stop people from voting the wrong way against the local political machine. Think of this as next-level paperwork to even be able to vote. Next, the process. What does it look like to vote in 1946? Well, I talked about this before, but there's the paper ballot. Listing the printed names of the candidates, voters made their selections by mark. From what I can see, McMinn still played their elections out in a pretty primitive manner. Many other states had moved to lever selection, using a mechanical lever, or other mechanisms. But this isn't Chicago, it's not New York City, it's McMinn County, and they had last year's technology. Last year's technology, today. What happened to the ballots afterwards? Well, that's where the trouble started. Well, I take that back. This election had problems all around. But let's say the voter filled out their ballot and was allowed to fill out their ballot. The voter carried their ballot to a locked box with a slot on top. They inserted it and walked away. The only handling of the ballot was supposed to be by the folks counting later on. This made sure that the vote remained secret. If you look at the history of voting in the United States, you'll find that people used to vote by voice. That's right, you used to shout out your vote in public. Pretty wild, right? The secret ballot was created to finesse the process and reduce intimidation. But paper ballots didn't count themselves. Who had oversight? Well... At this point, we have to make a distinction between de jure and de facto. That is, between what the written law said and how it was executed. According to Tennessee law, independent observers from both parties needed to be on site for the election to be legitimate. That meant both Democrats and Republicans in the room as voters did their business. Ballot boxes were to be opened and showed to the observers as being completely empty before voting could begin in the morning. After voting concluded, observers would be present during the counting. That also meant, by law, that as many citizens as wanted to be in the room could. All of this was designed to create an oversight process tried and true around the country and really going back through thousands of years of democracies. One last piece of the puzzle was perhaps the most important. No armed law enforcement could be present at the vote. Ha. Yeah, we'll see how that goes, right? Hopefully this explains the process to you anyway. All of this is reasonable stuff, common sense, actually. But remember, we're talking de jour and de facto. No protective provision went unscathed on August 1st, 1946. 
You'll see me trip over one violation after another in this podcast. At first it's fun, then it's enraging, and finally it's a little bit ridiculous. Oversight of the election process was the responsibility not of law enforcement, but of the county election commission. This group would verify authenticity, and if there were some issues, would appeal higher up. It could go to the governor or even the FBI. Well, Democrats controlled the election commission, and nobody outside of McMinn cared, as we described in the last podcast. Strap yourself in. As Bill White walked his way around Athens, gathering his men, GI allies went around the county making last-minute preparations, securing GI poll watchers, ensuring that the vote went down correctly. Many of the GIs had arrived at dawn to see whether ballot boxes were empty, watch the voting, and provide oversight. As we described in the last podcast, the GI party really saw themselves as the only ones who could provide actual oversight and accountability. One interesting note about a meeting that occurred early in the day, well, this was between Republican operative Otto Kennedy, who you remember from the cloak and dagger meeting, and Paul Cantrell's brother, Frank, the mayor of Ottawa. Yeah, there's no corruption there. I think they call that nepotism. Anyway, Otto Kennedy said to Paul Cantrell's brother, quote, Frank, I hope you are all going to keep it clean today. We don't need any people getting hurt, end quote. Cantrell's brother allegedly said, quote, that's the only way I'd want it. Everything will be okay, end quote. Both set off to monitor the election and drum up support for their party and so on. Yeah, this is all wishful thinking, and I don't actually buy what Kennedy is saying. Remember that this political operative of the Republican Party was the man who'd insisted that GIs prepare to pick up weapons. Perhaps he didn't want to use violence, and that was his last chance to try to head it off by talking to Cantrell's brother. But on the other hand, he'd actually kind of hinted that Bill White build a brute squad. Our white-hatted friend, Paul Cantrell, would spend most of his day in Etowah, coming to Athens at the end of the day for the final count. Don't worry, you'll see him later. As the hometown hero of Etowah, he probably thought he could rally the votes there to secure at least a part of the electorate. Trouble did not take long to start. At the courthouse, first precinct, remember the one with the columns and the shade trees, a GI election judge named Walter Ellis challenged the legality of a voter. Illegal voters were commonplace in these corrupted elections. Stories abound about this. These illegal voters started to arrive at the precincts, and many did not have their poll tax receipts, for instance, making them ineligible, but deputies gave them the pass anyway. Poll watchers and GI allies wanted the protests, but they could really only look at the pistols on the deputies who were at the polls. Yes, the deputies showed up to the polls. Sure enough. Who, who would have thought, right? Who would have guessed? That Cantrell would try to throw another one. Well, anyway. This guy, Ellis, GI poll watcher, had raised the idea that one of the voters was ineligible, even though the deputies had let them in. I don't know if Ellis objected legitimately, but deputies cracked down. They declared, shouting loud so that the crowd could hear, that Ellis had violated federal election law. The arrest of Ellis involved dragging him through the silent, watching crowd. Hauling him out past the columns of the courthouse, deputies took him to the county jail. The day had just started. Word spread. GIs felt dismayed. If they thought that their presence at the polls would be a deterrent for the Cantrell machine, they were wrong. In his oral history, Bill White mentions the courthouse incident. It was what made him to decide to take action. Bill White marched up to GI headquarters. Remember the one with the banner reading, Call 787, Vote GI. 
while he was flanked by his hand-picked men. He says, quote, I come down in there about 8.30 to GI headquarters, and Jim Buttram was in there, the head of the GI ticket, you know, the campaign manager, end quote. Now this is when the shouting starts. Presumably, campaign manager Buttram had already heard about Ellis at the courthouse being arrested because Bill says of him, quote, The deputies already had Buttram scared to death. He locked the door on me, and I was hollering through the door at him, and Buttram said, My God, you're going to get us all killed. You're going to get us all killed, end quote. So in other words, the campaign manager had a crisis of confidence. Cantrell's men weren't pulling any punches, and Buttram seemed ready to crumble. He wouldn't even open the door for the other GIs. Bill says one word in the oral history before taking action. Quote, Well, gotta love Bill White. That's me hitting my desk at home. Bill White kicked the door of the GI headquarters in. Classic Bill White. He explained to Jim Buttram that if the campaign manager felt threatened, he could always leave town. And Bill White said that's exactly what happened. By the end of the morning, each of the candidates who had run for the offices of Sheriff of Register of Deeds of County Trustee and the others, all those GI candidates, well, they'd left town. Bill says of that, quote, and just left me and my gang there. Well, that was all right with me. They didn't want to do no fighting. No way, they wasn't warriors, and they'd been in the military, but they wasn't frontline warriors, end quote. Bill said to his hand-picked men, quote, Boys, get out. Get in touch with every GI you can now and get them back here. We're going to organize big, end quote. You just listened to the GI ticket dematerialize, scattered to the four winds. Bill White wasn't a fan of this. I think he saw it as cowardice. I kind of know he saw it as cowardice. But strategically, this actually made sense. If the candidates stuck around attracting attention, deputies could capture and even jail the entire GI ticket. Remember that in previous elections, Cantrell and Mansfield's goons would arrest the family of candidates or even the candidates themselves. McMinn County's favorite pastime was arresting your political opponents. So now Bill White was left with his brute squad at the GI headquarters on the morning of the big vote, probably feeling kind of salty. The afternoon edition of the Chattanooga News Free Press went out. The article was by J.B. Collins, an old journalist who was on the McMinn County election beat and who will be mentioned in this podcast multiple times. The title read, quote, Arrest of G.I. might explode McMinn politics! Exclamation point, end quote. This is great. This is basically the 1940s equivalent of clickbait. Like, top 10 ways to throw an election and... You won't believe what this deputy said during a traffic stop, or corrupt elected officials hate this. Anyway, in town, voters loitered in crowds. Why was that weird? Well, during normal elections, people went home or they went back to work after they voted. You did your civic duty, maybe you'd pick up a few groceries, but generally you went home. Well, the business at the courthouse had set everyone on edge, and at 9 a.m., the tension only increased. People gathered in groups along the sidewalks and in front of shuttered businesses. They were waiting for something to happen. As noon came and went, the heat became punishing. Mansfield's recruited deputies felt the stares. The deputies cruising around town had to drive around standing groups of people. You have to wonder if their deputies were thinking about that $50 they'd been paid, whether all of this was worth it. Starting well before 8 a.m. that morning, many of the deputies had now worked polls for hours. GI poll watchers watched their every move, many made complaints, small things like not following process, but the deputies had started to feel tired and irritable. They had an election to throw. 
It would not take much to make this situation explode into violence. All the parts were there. Angry men, guns, a tense political situation, and a sweltering day. I read some research once about riots, and you find that they typically start in the hottest days of the year. Remember, this is well before air conditioning. There were, I'm sure, a few electric fans in some places, but that was about it. Heat settled on everyone like a smothering blanket. Patrolling cars of the deputies kicked up clinging dust. Perspiration dripped. The powder keg of Athens had a match floating right above it. GIs promised all votes would be counted as cast. How much longer could the town watch blatant cheating? Something would give at 3 p.m. The pandemonium I'm about to tell you about involves a few new, minor characters. It's really an unbelievable series of events witnessed by many people, including Bill White, and became infamous for its many dimensions. Earlier, I mentioned the crowds at the 11th precinct, the Waterworks. The Waterworks acted as the back office for the municipal water system, but on election day served as a nice public space in which to count the vote. There's an infamous picture from this day that shows the building. It's brick, had a sharp corner leading onto a side street, and had windows shaded by wide, striped awnings. Large windows made the building look inviting. Maybe they put large windows on there to give the air of transparency for the municipal water company's affairs. Lord knows there was little enough transparency when it came to municipal government in general in McMinn County. The 11th Precinct deputies had been there all day. One of them, Wendy Weiss, was sweaty and cranky, He had kept an eye on the voters and by 3 p.m. had a distinct feeling which way the election was going. People wanted the Cantrell gang out if he had to hazard a guess. For a deputy like Wendy Weiss, the Cantrell machine's collapse meant the end of a payday. Remember, this is a 10-year-old regime. Imagine your prestige and your income, for that matter, collapsing after a decade-long run of fee-grabbing and other illegal nonsense. The cookbook describes Wendy Weiss as looking like B.O. Plenty. Yeah, I didn't know who that was either. I had to look it up. The B.O. Plenty character comes from the comic book series Dick Tracy. Here's a clip from one episode featuring the long-bearded, wild-eyed B.O. Plenty who comes across as kind of a hillbilly nutcase. Apparently, Wendy's haircut looked just like fast-talking B.O. Plenty, that is, like a cartoon comic book portrayal of electrocution. Imagine Wendy Weiss as a man with a white shirt and dark pants, with a bit of a wild haircut that stuck off his head like a ragged rooster tail. He'd played football in high school and still had the build of a ball player, even at 37. He smoked and sweated the day away and tried to look authoritative. He had a 45 pistol, if anything got too hairy, but he also had a set of brass knuckles to calm things down if it came to that. Around 3 p.m., one voter pushed Deputy Wendy Weiss over the edge. That man's name was Tom Gillespie. Tom Gillespie was black, and is described in glowing terms no matter what I've read. As a side note, a source I read said that out of the 9,000 or so residents of Athens, about 700 were African American. As a block, they tended to vote Republican, and they tended to get hassled by the Democrat administration. Tom Gillespie was one of those voters. Short, but striking in appearance, he rode into town on a high-stepping horse and often did work for a Quaker family that had a great reputation. His pastoral homestead outside of town housed Tom's wife and his ten children. He was described as polite and well-loved. According to the cookbook, he lived by the motto, Always respect other people, and they can't help but respect you. 
That's a nice way to live your life, Tom. That's great. Unfortunately, it doesn't do anything for you on August 1st, 1946. That day, as was his manner, Tom rode his horse into town and hitched it about two blocks from the waterworks, the precinct where he had always voted. Like other voters, Tom handed his poll tax receipt over to the deputies to show that he qualified to vote. The presence of deputies didn't scare him off of voting. He'd earned the right to vote as a black man in the South and wouldn't let anyone intimidate him into going home. The cookbook relays the content of a conversation between Tom Gillespie and the deputies, including rooster, tail, head, Wendy Weiss. I found differing accounts of the conversation, but editorially, the cookbook gets it across. Wendy Weiss said, Where do you think you're going? Gillespie responded, I've come to vote. Vote? What are you aiming to vote for? I'm voting for the GIs, said Tom Gillespie. I don't imagine Gillespie had any illusions about which way the deputies wanted him to vote. Where do you live at? Union Road. Where's that at? Over near Hammers Hill. You're supposed to vote in Nyota, said Wendy. But I've always voted here, said Tom. The deputy snapped at him. Don't give me none of your backtalk, nigger. If you mean to vote our way, I'll see you get the chance. If not, they ain't doing nothing. At this point, Gillespie had his ballot in hand and needed to make a choice. He always had voted at the waterworks at the 11th precinct, and nothing had changed. Having no time for jerks, he started to vote. The deputies watched him mark his ballot. As he marked for the GI ticket, as he said he would, Wendy Weiss grasped the brass knuckles in his pocket. Giving a signal to his other deputies, Weiss said, quote, You're voting in the wrong precinct. I've always voted here before. Don't give me no sass, nigger. You talking to a white man, end quote. Tom was so shocked that he barely registered the brass knuckles headed in his direction. Gillespie had enough wherewithal to duck, but they still grazed his head. Gillespie dropped his ballot. Remember, Gillespie was unarmed. He was going to vote, not to fight. The deputy had brass knuckles. He also had a gun. I can only imagine what was going through Tom Gillespie's head at that moment. In the account I'm reading, Gillespie staggered towards the door. The hot pain of his clobbering making his head spin. He stopped. He turned around. In a show of courage that makes my own head spin, Tom Gillespie walked back inside to pick up his ballot off the floor of the waterworks office. That's the kind of courage that makes the people of eastern Tennessee special. When Wendy Weiss saw Gillespie had come back inside, he screamed. His face was beat red. Quote, Damn you! I told you we're not voting in this damn precinct today! End quote. The 45 appeared in Wendy Weiss's hand. With a swift motion, Wendy aimed, and he fired. The gun's report was all-encompassing in the hot confines of the building. Part of Gillespie's abdomen went numb. Shots of surprise went up. The smell of gun smoke gave an alarming edge to the close air of the office space. Gillespie stumbled out of the waterworks and onto the bright street. A woman in a sundress screamed, Oh, Lord God, they've shot him! Others shouted and pointed. People ran. Tom stumbled into the street and kept waiting for the next bullet. There was blood, and soon it was on his fingers, on his hands. Tom Gillespie collapsed into the street. Wendy Weiss stood in the doorway of the waterworks, the gun still aimed vaguely in Gillespie's direction. Wendy yelled at the other deputies, Get that nigger out of here! Get him to a hospital! Deputies waiting outside the precinct ran off to fetch a vehicle. The gunshot had attracted the attention of tens, if not hundreds, of others around town. Cars began to appear on the street, both the curious and the more deputies coming to the scene. One car shoved through the crowd and stopped right next to Gillespie. A few deputies leapt out and began to load him in. 
Blood had blossomed from a wound in his side and had likely pooled on the street. The crowd was quiet. They stared. Someone said, It was Mr. Tom Gillespie. Another said, Wendy Weiss is a dead man. The car drove off with Tom Gillespie in it, but the crowd outside did not dissipate. To the deputy's dismay, nobody seemed threatened by the shooting. Nobody really moved to vote either. Wendy Weiss and his deputies made a quick calculation. They could stay put. The precincts actually closed at four. Wendy just had to wait an hour, then the election would be over, they could count the damn ballots, and they could get back to fee-grabbing instead of babysitting the polls. More arrivals showed up at the waterworks. Among them was Bill White and part of his brute squad, attracted by the sounds of the gunshots. Hold that thought about the GIs showing up at the waterworks, because this wasn't the only 3 o'clock election disaster in Athens. I guess the lesson here is, watch out for 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's an evil time of day. It's a good time to take a nap. Across town, two GI poll watchers at the malted milkshake Dixie Cafe 10th Precinct finally had had enough. All day they'd watch the deputies let questionable people come in to vote. A 17-year-old girl with no poll tax receipt had arrived to vote. No, you cannot vote if you're 17. Mansfield's deputies gave her a ballot anyway and let her through. When pressed by the GI poll watchers, the deputies exploded into violence. One of the GIs at the Dixie Cafe went down with a blackjack to the head. Deputies held the rest of the GI poll watchers at gunpoint. The deputies then hustled the bleeding GI to the jail and the other poll watchers into a back room full of empty beer bottles. I wonder what emptied them. Anyway, deputies closed the Dixie Cafe precinct early, also illegal, in case you didn't think the uh, deputies beating people up was illegal. Then, in an event that I couldn't make up if I tried, deputies stationed outside the uh, Dixie Cafe here lifted an automobile off the road and onto the sidewalk. They placed it right in front of the door of the precinct to block access to the poles. Wow. Yeah, like I said, you can't make this up. Back in high school, my group of friends freaked out a buddy by picking up his car, it was a Toyota Paseo, and moved it across the parking lot. Because it was a Toyota Paseo, I think it was constructed of cardboard, it wasn't too hard to do. Carried cars, cracked skulls. In other words, high school behavior from the McMinn County Sheriff's Department. Back at the Waterworks, 11th Precinct, deputies cleared the sidewalks, pushing watching crowds across the street. Bill White and his GIs watched and got increasingly pissed off, but weren't sure yet how to react. Deputy Wendy Weiss had locked the doors to the brick building at 4 p.m., by doing this, they managed not to close the polls early, like everybody over at Malted Milkshake Cafe. Now, why did they close up the polls and close them tight? Well, they wanted to begin the vote count. However, they didn't close the polls with just the deputies inside, and Bill White didn't rush in for a particular reason. Remember what I said about the de jure and de facto nature of counting these ballots. Ballot counting could be observed by anybody. And there were many GIs on hand, including two at the 11th Precinct, who were there to watch the count. These GI poll watchers, who I'll introduce in a minute, remained inside the locked building with the deputies, thinking that they could at least oversee the count, even if the deputies were no longer letting the public come inside. But as you're about to find out, the deputies are about to throw that entire idea of public oversight onto its head. Remember... Deputies needed to at least make things look legitimate, since they just shot a man named Tom Gillespie right in broad daylight. 
What happened next must have thrown the GI poll watchers into despair. The two guys I'm talking about are Ed Vestal and Shy Scott. Both were themselves young combat veterans of World War II. Well, as soon as the deputies closed up shop, they prodded them into the corner at gunpoint. The vote count then began in another room. The GI poll watchers couldn't even see the vote being counted. Now, why bother letting the GI stay if you're just going to count things in the other room? Well, since so many people would question the count, the deputies could just easily claim that the GIs had been present during the vote and present during the count. They'd have an argument of legitimacy. And it's pretty sneaky stuff. Do you think anybody will buy it? Do you think anybody cares if anybody will buy it at this point? I don't think so. I mean, we're so beyond the pale now that we're shooting people in broad daylight. Out on the street, the GIs realized what was going on. They formed a plan. As the vote count began, a new group approached the waterworks. Six women, including GI poll watcher Ed Vestal's own mother, walked up to the door of the precinct. They crossed the battle lines of a sun-bleached street. The women knocked on the door of the waterworks. One of the deputies, actually the local game warden, answered. The women made it clear that they had come to observe the count. They reminded the deputies that, under Tennessee law, any citizen could observe the vote count. The game warden screamed in their face, Get out! But the GI poll watcher's mother, Mrs. Vestal, said, quote, You better be careful what you say, or you'll cause my baby to fight. End quote. Now imagine if Bill White had approached the waterworks around the same time these women did. He'd have been shot on the spot, because, you know, Bill White would have done the direct thing and run right in. In its own way, kind of a twisted way, chivalry actually won out in this case. Even in this tense situation, Mrs. Vestal and her group of women figured that the deputies would not open fire on a group of women. These women tried to use the only leverage they had to slow the situation from its descent into violence. It didn't seem to work, but on the other hand, who knows? It may have calmed some nerves. Across the street, the GIs tried to figure out what to do next when they realized that Mrs. Vestal's scheme had failed. The poll watchers inside were in danger. If Bill White's pistol squad rushed the building, they would might get those men hurt or killed themselves. Wendy Weiss proved he and his rooster tail hair were willing to do anything to throw the election. It must have been driving the GIs crazy to know that all they could do was send some women into harm's way. Jim Buttram, the campaign manager, spied the sheriff's car parked nearby. Pat Mansfield, who you'll remember as our sheriff, had arrived to keep a close eye on the waterworks. He'd heard about what went down. Jim and the sheriff exchanged heated words. We don't really have a verbatim record of what the campaign manager said to the sheriff, but the gist of the negotiation between the GI manager and the sheriff was this. Mansfield would not back down even though Buttram later told somebody that he would have let the Cantrell forces go through with their own twisted vote count if it meant getting Vestal and Scott out of the precinct into safety. But the sheriff refused, and this strange siege went on. The standoff stretched. Both in the Dixie Cafe and at the Waterworks, deputies began to count as they wished people cast. How did that look, do you think? How did it look to twist the vote and play electioneering games? Well, here's how it looked. One vote for the GIs, five votes for the Democrats. One to five, repeated over and over again. I count Democrat, 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 GI. Democrat, 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 GI. Why one to five, though? Why not just do it five out of five? How about that? Well, 
No dictator in history ever declared that they had 100% compliance. Hosni Mubarak, the late president-slash-dictator of Egypt, routinely won elections at around 78-80%. to Even the most corrupt administrations know that 100% compliance is a little too obvious. Probably fearing that someone might escape his attention, Sheriff Mansfield rolled off from the waterworks to check out the Dixie Cafe again. Seeing Mansfield cruising away, the two GI pole watchers trapped in the waterworks, Vestal and Scott, took action. Today's military code of conduct states that, quote, If I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means available. I will make every effort to escape and aid others to escape, end quote. That portion of the Code of Conduct came right after some famous POW incidents in the Korean War. Vestal and Scott followed the spirit of the Code, though, even if they predated it. They took their only chance at escape, and they exploited it. Scott leaned his weight against the nearby plate glass windows. Remember the transparency windows? The window bent. It bulged. Then it exploded outward. Scott fell onto the sidewalk. Vestal leapt out after him. Broken glass sliced skin. Both men were cut, Scott on his ankles and Vestal on his face. Is there any sound quite like breaking glass? You can bet the sound shattered concentrations. The crowd across the street gasped. Deputies whirled around inside the waterworks to find the source of the noise. They saw the backs of the two retreating GIs, red spilling from them as they went out the window. The waterworks had turned bloody twice in one day. There's a famous picture of this escape. It was taken by the local radio station journalist slash DJ named Chuck Redfern. I think Chuck should have won an award for this picture. In it, Ed Vestal and Shia Scott run across the empty street to the waiting crowd. The two GIs have their hands high above their heads, a clear sign of peaceful disengagement and retreat. Bill White, Jim Buttram, and others shouted for them. Scott and Vestal had been there when Tom Gillespie was shot. They probably wondered when bullets would start flying. Bursting through the front doors of the waterworks, Wendy Weiss and his game warden partner both drew their weapons and pointed them at the fleeing GIs. Since the pole watchers ran toward the crowd, that meant the deputies brandished weapons at the crowd. A woman shouted, quote, Oh God, here it comes! End quote. Those in the line of fire screamed. Some dove behind cars. Now, if anything in the Battle of Athens happened predictably, the next few moments should have resulted in a firefight. The deputies were hot, panicked, and had lost control of the situation. Bill White and his friends had pistols too, but nobody shot. Some accounts say that the game warden's gun jammed, others that everyone held their cool, and still others that White had his gun swatted down by another deputy. It's hard to say what really happened, but I do know that the crowd started to jeer. A few of the GIs on the street shouted at the deputies, egging them on. Quote, come out in the street and we'll fight you man for man, end quote, one GI had said. But the half a dozen to a dozen deputies didn't even begin to equal the number of the crowd. A mob would overpower them. The stalemate continued. The GI poll watchers had escaped, but the deputies still had the ballot boxes and their false count continued. The deputies somehow got word to Mansfield and the other ones, perhaps by phone or messenger. At 4.55 p.m., about an hour after the poll closed, Mansfield's goons pulled up to the waterworks in cars. Armed men poured out and formed a corridor from the waterworks door to one of the vehicles. The crowd watched as deputies carried the ballot boxes out of the precinct one at a time. 
A close-up picture was actually taken of this event by journalist J.B. Collins, the one who wrote our favorite headlines, but that picture didn't last long on film. Deputies put the journalist under arrest and dragged him off, making sure to destroy the film negatives. J.B. Collins went from writing clickbait to the clink. Yeah, sorry, I had to do that one. Anyway, the convoy, escorted by armed deputies on foot, hightailed it to the jail. Like the G.I.s, the deputies have been paying attention to the violence. I think at this point in the afternoon, the sheriff's department had decided that the voting precincts had gotten too hot. The jail, their fallback position, was the path of least resistance. Now, the idea of a fallback position comes from many, many years of throwing elections. In order to perform the count without being bothered, the Cantrell machine would fall back to this jail. In the old pictures, the jail had large, commanding windows and a brick face. It had a peaked roof punctuated by chimneys and attic windows, and really looked more like a converted mansion than the windowless prisons we see today. That's kind of the way a lot of things were in Athens, right? This is not a rich town. This is not a town with gigantic government contractors. This is the kind of town where the jail is really a converted house. As deputies left the waterworks, the GIs had decided they'd taken enough abuse. The bloodbath and the hijinks galvanized the GI camp. Shouts of, Get your guns, boys! Get your guns! went through the crowd. Note the use of the word boys. Bill White tried to rally the men at GI headquarters, but you pretty quickly realized there wasn't enough room in the small storefront. 200 men had showed up, ready for action. Otto Kennedy, our resident Republican, lent Bill White the S&K Tire Store, diagonally across the street from GI headquarters. S&K is spelled E-S-S-E-N-K-A-Y, and the sign above the door advertising it was written in thick cursive lines. The tire shop had a warehouse storage area large enough to accommodate the hundreds who'd showed up. As they stuffed themselves into the sweltering building, smelling of rubber tires and sweat, the GI crowd in the S&K tire shop started to get unruly. They needed direction. They needed leadership. Otto Kennedy, it's said, turned to Bill White. Someone needed to make a speech. It seems to be, according to one account, that Bill White was asked to make a speech by Otto Kennedy. Bill said that the idea of giving a speech was more nerve-wracking than playing dead in the bloody surf on Tarawa. Bill climbed onto an oil drum and the room quieted. He remembers the speech going something like this. Quote, Well, here you are, back home in McMinn County, back home in Athens, back from overseas, after three or four years fighting for your country. But didn't all of you come back, did they? But you did. You survived it all. You came back. And what did you come back to? A free country? Hell no, you didn't come back to no free country. You came back to Athens, Tennessee in McMinn County that's run by a bunch of outlaws. They've got hired gunmen all over this country right now at this minute. What for? One purpose. To scare you so bad you won't dare stand up for the rights you've been bleeding and dying for. End quote. Now, I stopped here because this is a long quote, but Bill's just getting started. He continues and says, quote, We've got to make this an honest election because we promised the people that if they voted, it would be an honest election. And it's going to be, but only if we see that it is. We are going to have to run these organized criminals out of town, and we can do it only if we stick together. Are you afraid of them? Why, I could take a banana stalk and run every one of these pot-bellied draft dodgers across Depot Hill. How many of you got guns? A few raised their hands. 
Okay, you men with guns stay right here in this garage. All you other guys get out of here and get something to shoot with and come back as fast as you can get back, end quote. Hell of a speech for a guy who went to work and war instead of completing high school. The G.I.s fanned out into the community, arming themselves however they could. Meanwhile, the deputies weren't sitting around waiting for it. Sheriff Mansfield's scouts had noticed the gathering at the S&K tire shop. Mansfield, back at the Democrat Nerve Center at the jail, dispatched deputies to calm the mob and monitor the situation. Around 5.10 p.m., G.I. watchers noticed two deputies winding towards G.I. headquarters in the tire shop, walking through back alleys and down the street, and they were both armed. Rather than cower, the crowd was incensed. Blood boiled. After all, the crowd had no idea what had happened to Tom Gillespie. Scott and Vestal were injured only an hour past. Other G.I.s were incarcerated across town. Journalists had been dragged off to the jail, and nobody had heard another word about them. You'll recall that Otto Kennedy had been the original one to advocate for arming G.I.s back in that cloak-and-dagger meeting. I admit, when I first read about Kennedy advocating an armed resistance, I had my doubts about his sincerity. A lot of people will call for violence, but few will be there when it goes down. It's like a group project back when you were in grade school. There's always that guy who stands off to the side. You get annoyed. What is he doing? He's managing. Well, much to my surprise, Kennedy and his brother, who owned the tire shop, were among the first to engage those deputies coming down from the jail. Those two deputies never got off a shot. Bill White was there. Quote, Pat Mansfield sent some deputies down there to see what we was doing. Well, they come down and where we was, but they didn't go back. We grabbed them and captured them and put them in Kennedy's old tire place over there and made prisoners of them. And we got seven of them down there, coming down there. Beat some of them up, because naturally that went with it. We whooped around on them a little bit and disarmed them just to give us that many more guns. End quote. The fistfights around the tire shop had an element of keystone cops. You know, comic relief. Apparently, after the first two deputies got beaten down and never reported back, Mansfield sent two more deputies. Otto and Bill and the rest beat down the two new ones, too. Then Mansfield sent another three deputies down, and they got beaten to a pulp, too. Now the G.I.s had seven deputies prisoner, had seven more pistols, and at least a thousand people were strung out over a few blocks of downtown Athens. Some had guns. More weapons appeared by the minute. An old repeating rifle, farmer's shotgun, more pistols. People grabbed ammo from wherever they could. In the tire shop, Bill White and his men talked over what to do about the prisoners. Otto Kennedy asked Bill what his plans were. Bill White, who'd learned in the Pacific to never take prisoners, said, quote, I don't know, Otto. We might just kill them, end quote. According to Bill, Kennedy couldn't stand the thought. Do you think Bill White was serious? To tell you the truth, I'm not actually sure. And neither was Otto Kennedy, the Republican operative. Taking his brother and abandoning the tire shop, Kennedy left town with his entire family. Bill White says, quote, They got home, pushed all the furniture up against the door and everything, end quote. Now, from what I can see, it was true that Kennedy fled right after the capture of the seven deputies. Why Kennedy left remains a source of mystery. One source said he realized how deep he'd gotten involved. He himself had been punching people in the face. Maybe someone snapped a picture of him beating down a deputy. Or did the sight of G.I.s and Bill White's ferocity scare him a little? 
Another source says that Kennedy realized the GIs didn't have enough armaments to win an armed conflict against the 200 deputies estimated to be in town. Whatever the reason, Kennedy left. The Republican barricaded his house, and he wouldn't be back in Athens until the battle was over. I'm not going to lie. After being surprised at Kennedy's willingness to fight, my respect for him then diminished when I found that that he just ran out of town. Who did that leave in charge of our festivities on the street? Bill White. The GIs beat seven deputies some more. They stripped them of clothes, shoes, and weapons and tied them to trees outside of town. They told them to walk home to wherever they came from. Mansfield's missing deputies must have worried the sheriff. He knew that there were hundreds of townspeople out on the street, and they were about to make life a little bit more interesting. The sheriff needed to consolidate the ballots, and quickly. Sheriff's men at the Dixie Cafe made an armed column from the cafe to the jail, consisting of 20 or 30 armed men, rushing the boxes along the way. Mansfield likely breathed a sigh of relief as the last of the precinct boxes came in. From a strategic point of view, by securing the ballots from the Dixie Cafe and the waterworks, they'd secured two of the most populous precincts in the county. Add in the first precinct, the courthouse, which had been barricaded now for a couple of hours, the Cantrell machine could easily secure the election for the Democrats. Game over, right? In previous elections, if the incumbents could secure the ballot boxes for the BS counting job, they remained in power. Why wouldn't this election go down like the rest of them? Sure, a few heads had been bashed in, but victory was also baked in. But Mansfield had a problem, and that problem was morale. Deputies just weren't sticking around. Remember that those guarding the jail had noticed that anyone headed out towards GI headquarters never came back. Whatever camaraderie existed started to fail. Deputies did not want to get involved in a gunfight. Mansfield did his best to try to reassure everybody. He tried to tell them no harm would come their way. They had the ballot boxes secure and had finished with the most troublesome part of the entire election process, if you want to call it an election process. But many deputies, held there only by the promise of a day's pay, had started to slough off, so to say. They wanted to go home and demanded their 50 bucks. Once paid, many did go home. Now look at the situation on the other side with the G.I.s. The slate of candidates had disappeared. Otto Kennedy, their pet Republican, had fled the scene. Jim Buttram doesn't seem to be there either. That leaves the dispossessed. That leaves the people on the street. Battle-hardened men, furious, already gathering guns and harboring a white-hot anger at the establishment. Remember that Bill White had called the deputies draft dodgers and inflamed the crowd even more with that comment. Assembled around him, his countrymen, his neighbors, looked for the next step. And more importantly, more people accreted to their cause with every passing minute. This is the classic showdown between a group of people held together by money and corruption and a group of people held together by spirit and righteousness. As the sun started edging towards the horizon, a stately man arrived at the jail with an entourage. Fresh from the Etowah elections, he wore glasses under a white Stetson hat with a black brim. It was our friend Paul Cantrell. He'd finally arrived to monitor their final count for those key precincts. In the jail, he joined his understudy, Pat Mansfield, as well as some of the others you've come to know, like Deputy Wendy Weiss, with his rooster tail hair. Cantrell's presence staunched the flow of deputies out of the building. Here was their fearless leader. 
With his white hat on, Cantrell had talked an entire county into accepting his corruption for over a decade. The guy could definitely talk. Cantrell and his forces kicked J.B. Collins, the journalist who tried to snap a photo, out. Too much trouble to be holding a journalist in the jail. Maybe Cantrell saw that as a mistake. But they kept the other G.I.s inside. That included the guy they arrested early in the morning. If it came down to it, the Cantrell forces must have decided they would be able to leverage a prisoner with any attacking force. Also, just in case, they posted a few guards to watch the street. It didn't seem like they had much anxiety about what would come next. The election was over. The mob was a bunch of farmers with their rusty shotguns. What were they going to do about it? Actually, the bit about rusty shotguns was true. At around 6.45 or 7 p.m., the G.I.s only had limited armaments. But a resource lay ready to be tapped. An armory outside of the town was well known to servicemen, some of whom have already been in the National Guard. Bill White goes into an explanation of how he shook down the major in charge of the National Guard armory. The major said to them, quote, this is one of my favorites, You're playing with the government! You're playing with the government now! End quote. What the major meant was that by breaking into the armory to take the armaments inside, the GIs messed with the state and federal government. Interesting choice of words because they'd been playing games with the county government all day. But Bill and his men were determined, and they may have been convincing. The keys got them through the front door, and they busted out the remaining locks on the armory. Or, this is Bill's story. I think it's important to point out that another story is that a father and son by the name of Powers threatened the handyman who took care of the armory for the keys. There's also the story of an Owens who procured several more modern rifles. This is one of those matters of the fog of war, namely, where did they get their guns? However it played out, a two-ton truck drove back to GI headquarters. The militia now had the following armaments, and I'll list them out here. Three M1 Garands. Those are semi-automatic rifles, often called the rifle that won World War II. Five M1911 45 caliber automatic pistols. Two Thompson submachine guns, which are also the Tommy guns of legend. 60, yes, 60 bolt-action M1917 American Enfield rifles, used early in World War II before being replaced by the semi-auto Garand. They also had more bandoliers of .30-06 ammunition they could pair with the actual rifles. They must have also picked up quite a bit of 45 ACP ammunition, which would have fit both the 1911 pistols and the Tommy guns. Now add to that the patchwork of other weapons available to the men, and you likely had close to 100 firearms, including rifles, shotguns, and pistols from people's personal gun cabinets, and a few knives and other bludgeoning tools thrown in for good measure. This was a small army. Importantly, the weapons that were drawn out of that National Guard armory were familiar to these GIs. Many of these GIs had lugged around Springfield and Enfield bolt-action rifles early in the war, and those Garands, well, those were some of the most familiar weapons to them that they'd used throughout the war. These men were trained to use them. They had numbers now, they had guns, they had tons and tons of ammo. While deputies had dwindled to probably less than 100, maybe even closer to 50 within the jail, GI numbers continued to swell as people retrieved guns from their homes. As 7 p.m. came, the day cooled. Some of the insane heat and humidity of earlier evaporated. 
when Bill White heard that the Cantrell machine moved most of the ballot boxes to the jail and that they'd limited themselves to a single geographic location, he said to himself, quote, I'm glad they done that. Now all we got to do is whip on that jail. That was their bad mistake, end quote. Bill White rallied around 60 of his best men. I assume the rest ran the streets of the city. He brought this core force on the road. They went past the sleepy red brick campus of Tennessee Wesleyan College. The departing sun made the brick blaze a fiercer red. Bill split his force in half. That seems to have been a precaution to make sure they weren't seen in a large group. Half went through the alley near the jail. Bill's half went past the darkened post office. I tried to imagine those forces creeping through the town. There had to be people on the street who saw them moving. Imagine 30 men with bandoliers full of shiny brass cartridges carrying burnished rifles through town. Did they get waved at by neighbors? Did people nod as they passed? Whoever watched their passage must have known something fierce was about to go down. Ambush has been a winning strategy since human beings used sharpened sticks to hunt big game. Both the detachments of GIs met on a grassy embankment across from the jail, a high ground position with a good view of the building. It was dark enough by then that the deputies outside the jail did not notice them. The GIs went undetected, all 60 of them. Bill reports that he said to the men, quote, I'm going to tell them to bring the ballot box out of there. If they don't, we're going to open up on them, end quote. Bill then describes how he strode to the apex of the grassy embankment. One of Bill's war stories from Guadalcanal involved standing on the leading edge of a Higgins boat as Japanese machine gun fire strafed and killed 17 Americans on his boat. The only reason Bill survived that encounter was because of his aggressive, exposed position. So it went now. Bill White screamed up at the jail, You better bring them damn ballot boxes out of there! The deputies turned and looked at Bill White. They didn't pull their weapons. From their perspective, a single crazy guy stood on the grassy knoll across the street, shouting at them. But Bill White did pique their interest. Someone from inside the jail called back, Are you the law in McMinn County? Bill shouted back, There ain't no damn law in McMinn County. Wow, what a great line. But now that they were aware of Bill, the deputies started to get the feeling of eyes on them. Many eyes. One of the deputies gasped. He was recorded as saying, quote, By God, I heard a bolt click. End quote. Somewhere in the gloom of the grassy embankment, one of the GIs had shifted the action on his Enfield and put a round in the chamber. Panic rose at the jail. Deputies who let their eyes adjust might not have only seen a single crazy guy standing on the hill, but also the glint of starlight on the bristling riot of rifle barrels. Bill White pulled a pistol from his belt. He aimed at one of the deputies guarding the jail, and he fired. And that's where I'll leave you. In the next episode of Counted as Cast, you'll hear what happens after Bill White fired the first shot. You'll hear what happens to Paul Cantrell, Pat Mansfield, deputies like Wendy Weiss, and learn the fate of the GI ticket. You'll get a ground view of the action, but I'll also discuss the way the press talked about it. The media's role in the next part of the story is critical. Thanks for joining us for Counted as Cast. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself over here, and I'm excited to talk to you next time as we delve into Chapter 5, Siege. 